on this episode. The USTA, which was governed by men because we were always fighting with them and Gladys was uh, asking for this and telling them this is our sketches, this is how we're going to do it, uh, and they didn't like it. And so they started their own tour for the women and we were in competition and it was crazy. You know, we kept on saying, why are we doing it? Why aren't we finally in 1973, I believe they combined. Recorded live in the corner booth at the center of the Coachella Valley universe. This is Big Conversations, Little Bar. Now your hosts, Patrick Evans and Randy Florence. Welcome to another episode of Big Conversations Little Bar. I'm Patrick Evans, and along with my co-host Randy Florence, we're delighted to be here at Skip Page's Little Bar, the center of the Coachella Valley universe. We are delighted to be here. We are. This time you were right. (laughs) (laughs) You always seem delighted. Usually until about halfway through. Uh, and then, then we wake you up, and then the rest of it goes really fine. well. It's, yeah. it's, it's very nice. Uh, of course, John McMullen, our engineer, along with us. And today we have an incredible guest. Uh, I've worked with Rosie Casals on, an, on a number of different things. She's been a guest on Eye on the Desert. Uh, but, Randy, you have done copious research. Uh, going so far as to travel to Wimbledon to get some dirt from the court. Uh, so why don't you do the official introduction? Well, it's a grass court. Well, they have dirt under the grass. You know that, right? I don't know how it grows. <laughs> um, hey, th- this is, I've really been looking forward to this. You know, the original concept of this podcast was that we were talking about music and maybe music that meant something to people's lives. And it came from a trip I was making over here, heard a song that reminded me of my dad, and that's what made me think about that podcast. Wow. That's Today. A, that's, a, that, that's some kind of uh, way to get there, huh? Yeah. Well, today... My mom would have been really proud. My mom would be proud to be here today because our guest, Rosie Casals, was one of her heroes. And we'll talk about that a couple of different times during this. But she was, in the early 70s, a feminist, believed in equality of pay, believed that we needed to get as equal as we could. And you were a hero. And I will never sit, forget sitting there and watching the match with... Billy Jean and Bobby Riggs and you calling it. So for that, thank you. My mom would be really proud of me sitting here talking to you today. Well, I'd be proud to know her as well because uh, the 70s were really a big time for women and women's tennis especially, but uh, Women's Live came about and, you know, Gloria Steinem and Bella Apsuk and, you know, the burning of the bras and uh, we were all participating uh, us in in, in uh, women's tennis uh, so yeah you know there's uh, a lot of history in the 70s that uh, uh, started us on the road for equality well we were from the Bay Area too so of course we knew okay. all about you so let's start there you're born in San Francisco born and raised in San Francisco uh, my my great aunt and uncle actually raised us and uh, my dad, uh, I call him dad, uh, he used to play soccer way back when. He's from San Salvador, and uh, they uh, immigrated around the uh, 40s. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a very good time just after the Depression and everything, but uh, he loved soccer, but unfortunately he had a broken ankle and he couldn't play. And uh, he started playing tennis, and I came along somewhere uh, around 1948 and add another eight years to that uh, he uh, he was still playing tennis and he 
um, decided that maybe, maybe you know, all the time that I was bugging him, going to Golden Gate Park, and you know, uh, asking for a quarter to go to the merry-go-round, and <laughs> uh, finally he said, "Here's a racket. Go to the, uh, uh, you know, uh, handball court over there, and go hit against uh, the back." board there and see if you're any good and oh my god all of a sudden I'm hitting and hitting and the ball's coming back and I'm you know I finally come back to the tennis I you finish I want to play with you come and play with me and then finally he got me on the court and uh, you know it was like I never looked back after that I could hit the tennis ball and I was pretty good at it and he was pretty excited about the fact that I that I could play tennis and hit the ball you love the game right away. Oh, I mean, it was it. I mean, I, I couldn't think of anything else. I was going to school. I was still just uh, in grammar school, going to, you know, he- head to junior high school at some point. But I, I just didn't even want to go to school. I wanted to play tennis all day long. And so I couldn't wait till that bell rang so I could run out of the out of school and, and, and home, put my tennis shoes on, my tennis clothes, <laughs> grab my rack, and, hey, Dad, let's go, let's go. So I, w- I was really very fortunate that uh, I found my passion very early in life. That's awesome. At that time, uh, I mean, you were such a, a groundbreaking player uh, on the women's side of the court. So who did you look to for inspiration when, as, a, as a kid growing up and as a, as a girl growing up? Uh, it was hard to find a role model in the sport. And, and to tell you the truth, I did not have a ro- role model at that point in time when I was starting. I mean, my dad would be the role model, the fact that he was playing and he was teaching me and taking me around the um, Bay Area to all the tournaments. I, I just, you know, I started playing the tournaments, started winning, and it just became addictive, you know, the fact that I could play and I could win and mind you I came from the wrong side of the tracks I mean tennis was not really a sport for Latino uh, girls and and you know where I came from the wrong side of the tracks I mean when I first uh, went to Golden Gate Park I was invited you know uh, when they realized that I was pretty good to play with a group of girls the Junior Whiteman Cup and they played every Mondays and Fridays but they had white tennis clothes and, and the only way you could play you had to have white a white tennis clothes so I had to borrow one of theirs and uh, you know uh, it was nice of them to hand me a, a nice little outfit and uh, you know I started playing with them and the good thing about it is 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 that they may have had the Cadillacs and the Buicks and the you know Packards uh, and, and, and all the good things uh, that, that I thought wow you know uh, they've got it all and uh, but the good thing about it is that I could beat them. They couldn't beat me, and you know that that uh, they couldn't take away. And so um, it kind of even the playing field. One of the things that I love that you have done here in the valley is you you work with youth from all over the valley and all socioeconomic groups to get kids into tennis, no matter you know where they are. Uh, no matter what their parents' means are, uh, you're really opening up the sport to a whole new generation of kids. Well, I know that it opened everything to me. It gave me my life. It gave me everything, relationships that, uh, you know, connected me to uh, everything that I am and everything that I know. So um, in trying to 
get them out of their environment. And tennis is something, as I said, that was not anything for girls or anything for my, um, you know, background. So in this environment of uh, uh, elitists, I would say uh, tennis is still very much so uh, considered that. But if we can get one, two, three kids out of that environment or show them a different way to go and uh, you know this is what I hope that I can share with them what I had what it gave me and I think relationships are everything I know Billie Jean says that all the time but it's true all the connections you make along the way um, adds to your life and your lifestyle and everything and of course a lot of the kids are you know uh, Latinas and Latinos and from uh different parts of, of, of Coachella as well as also um, we, we work with like you said everybody but to try and give them something different to hope for and to uh, hopefully get an education because if you don't uh, make it in the pros but it doesn't mean you can't get an education and a scholarship and you know all the good things that come with uh being good at a sport yeah most of the kids who who play even in college don't go on to pros but it does open doors for these kids definitely opens doors and you know we need to get more kids playing because certainly you know they think about team sports more than anything you play basketball you play baseball you play football you uh, uh, latinos play soccer and you know you can go down washington street and see that field full of kids and families and I like to see that in tennis um, but uh, it's a difficult sport and it's an expensive sport in, in regards to you know if you got a family of three four five six uh, you know tennis rackets aren't cheap anymore um, they used to, uh, the first racket I bought at, at Sears was eight bucks <laughs> uh, I, I mean even kids rackets now are 50 or 60 bucks yeah it's expensive the, tennis the price shoes are you know and the pros 200 bucks I mean the first pair of shoes I bought were about six bucks mm. and so you know the game is an expensive game and we provide you know the equipment and uh, the the instructions and, and hopefully get some hooks so that, you know, but we need tennis courts, and that's the problem also is we don't have very many tennis courts that are available to um, kids. Uh, everything is in a gated community. We've got tons of tennis courts in a gated community outside of the Yeah, they're all community. in country clubs and yeah. gated uh, communities, and so access and, is limited. And tennis courts are dwindling because those pickleballers are stealing our courts. They're coming in. <laughs> Don't get me started. And they're taking the courts. I'm giving, you know, free clinics uh, at the uh, Fitz uh, Burns in La Quinta. And, uh, you know, you get to the tennis courts, and there are four left. There used to be eight. And now the pickleball courts are very, very full. And the Civic Center, likewise, I did the um, a tennis fiesta there for Hispanic Heritage Month, and we had about 120 kids, and we had to squeeze them into uh, three ten- full tennis courts and the rest pickleball. Yeah. yeah, because that's what's happening. It's a changing environment. It is, and you know, yeah, so many seniors I, are turning to pickleball because it's it's uh, easier on the body. Well, but they keep saying they're getting more injuries. <laughs> with 
knees and hips and th- because it's it, it's a fast and, and a start and stop but you know well the, they'll lose their hearing eventually too just from the sound <laughs> of it i hate that sound you, i hate that sound you know <laughs> you touched on something and i want to kind of go back to this because unfortunately it's like really big news when somebody comes out of the public courts you the williams sisters how how when you first started how were you impacted by the fact that you weren't a country club player? How, how did that make you feel when you had to play them? Did it make you feel more competitive against them? Definitely more competitive. Yeah. I mean, I, they gave me a chip on my shoulder. It's still there. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I knew that, that I was better than them. And they may have had better resources and a better lifestyle, et cetera. But it didn't change anything on the court. You know, if you're good, you're good. on the. And I was very good. And uh, as a youngster, and, you know, I, I, I wasn't looking ahead, let's say, uh, to how this generation can look ahead and say, I want to be a pro, because there was, there was no such thing as a pro during that time right. in the 60s, and not until 1968 when the open era came, and then you could say, I can turn pro, you know, and there was money. But then it was the love of the game. I mean, you love to play, you love to hit the ball. You know, I made a lot of friends. I loved the Golden Gate Park. I would go there every single day. <clears throat> and our friends would get together and we, you know, because you, as a kid, you can't really get on a court and play singles. You have to play doubles with somebody else. And maybe that's why my doubles was so good, because we always had to play doubles and team up and pair up. And and, and we had a great time, you know, we had a great time with, with, with uh, playing amongst one another. When did you start um, traveling in the tennis world? How old were you? Well, I mean, I started traveling when I was about, I would say about 13, 14. I went to the Pacific Northwest. There was a circuit that you would play in Oregon, Washington, and Canada. And I went with a couple of friends and, uh, you know, they took a group of kids so uh, up there. And that's when I started, you know, I left San Francisco and got to Portland, played in Portland, Tacoma, Washington, um, in Vancouver, and I thought, wow, this is a different world, different things to see, different food to eat, you know, different ways to be, and uh, I think it kind of whet my appetite to traveling, and then I I went down south to play uh, all the junior tournaments down in Los Angeles, Arcadia, Santa Monica, the whole uh, circuit that they had there. And again, I, uh, you know, my dad drove and, you know, we had jalopies that never quite made it up the grapevine, you know, like everybody you'd have to pull over, wait till it cools off and, you know, uh, put some water in it. And, hope, and all this hope. time, your dad was still basically the person coaching you. He was he your was, only coach, right? He, he was my only coach at, in, in the juniors. He really was the one that would, you know, go the extra mile that I knew that I could depend on. But mind you, we had cars that you couldn't depend on, so you never knew. Fortunately, we lived on a little incline that, that, <laughs> that we could push that car. I would jump in, jump start it, and pick him up, and That's off great. we'd go to wherever we were going. So, um, you know, we, we really had our challenges, and... I've got to say more than one time I was defaulted because I got there too late, you know. So anyway, but um, yeah, he was the one that I depended on to 
uh, you know, keep pushing me along and making me better. And, you know, uh, we did have, like I said, pretty good juniors in, uh, at Golden Gate Park. So they were all pr- ranked in, in, in Northern California. They were all pretty good. Could this happen again? Could somebody come off of public courses, uh, uh, Court? courts, and... They could in certain Without places. getting hooked up to a Nick Volatari uh, or somebody like that. Now. It's, it's just a lot harder. The, the, the mindset and the culture of tennis has changed so much. Um, you know, there are pure and pure uh, tennis courses we're talking about and, park, and, and, and public parks available that would allow and, and provide any, any kind of, you know, uh, free clinics or things to get the kids to come. And that's the problem. It's, it's just that now... Um, if you want to play tennis and, and, and parents feel that if you want to be good, I don't agree with it, but you know, what has happened is that everybody wants to go to an IMG um, you know, or, or, or over to Spain and I don't blame them because they're very good and they produce great players and you know, but uh, not everybody can afford fifty, sixty thousand uh, dollars you know, uh, uh, to go to any of these, uh, you know, uh, uh, camps, but uh, hard to go to a junior, uh, to a public court now. Was and there a match early in your life that you won that said, oh, I can do this, I, I, I'm really good? Well, I think I think right off the bat, I, I won my junior tournaments, and I've beat the first seeded player and she'd been playing for at least a couple years and then I always played above my you know you weren't happy group. having to play in your age group I always played above my age group and it you know and and I started winning those even though they they, they were very competitive and and then after that I was playing also in the open women's open uh, we had very good players in Northern California as well but Southern California was better, so sometimes I, w- I would play some tournaments down there, and I realized that I, I am competitive. I am beating some of these um, international players, and hence came Billie Jean. In 1964, uh, I played her in doubles with my partner, and we were ranked number one in Northern California in the juniors. And I played Billie Jean and, and, and uh, Carol Codwell, her uh, partner, and we lost like seven five seven five in the finals, and you know we were very competitive. And I remember Billie Jean telling me after, um, you know, coming off the court, she says, uh, "You know what? You're really good. You better keep it up because you know you're really you have a lot of potential." And I think those words were very meaningful to me to have somebody who's already won two Wimbledons with Karen Sussman, her partner. Um, a year and a half later, I play her again. She just came from um, Australia where she was changing her game, and and I lost her in the finals of the state championship. And she said, you know, I'm going to lose my partner, Karen, and she's married, she's going to have a kid. Uh, would you like to play Wimbledon with me? And, wow. You know, wow, so that's how that partnership... Well, yeah, that's how we started that partnership and that friendship and, you know, everything else. Um, you know, I I was like, you want to play with me? Are you sure you want to play? Yes, I want to play with you. And uh, Apparently you know, it worked out okay. I It definitely worked out okay. I mean, it was uh, so exciting because finally 
I was getting out of school. I was done with high school. I, I left early. Fortunately, my teachers allowed me to make to to do my classes early so I could graduate. And boy, I tell you, I never looked back. I mean, somebody said, "Don't you want to go to college? Don't you?" I mean, at that point, anyway, women did not necessarily go to college. Um, there were no such thing as scholarships for women at that point in time, not until 1972 in Title IX. Right. So I was so excited to go to Wimbledon. I mean, you know, I had read about it. I'd seen it. Mind you, we didn't see a lot of it on TV because during that time you would not see Wimbledon on TV. You would see maybe the uh, what is now the U.S. Open, but they would only show a little of Maria Bueno in the finals with Darlene Hard and the and uh, and a little bit of the mittens, you know. So, um, but in my mind, I, you know, Wimbledon was really the place that I went. You know, I went as a player. That's where you want to go. And it might be surprising to some. You're a little bit of a rebel. There's a requirement of most players at Wimbledon that they wear all white. And well, you kind we, of shook that up a little bit, didn't well, you? Well, I mean, I had to wear all white. You had to wear predominantly, predominantly. white. Okay, and, and, and subsequently, I, I think what you're alluding to is the tennis dress that I had. Uh, Ted Tingling made me that specifically had the VS, VS, <laughs> and purple squiggles. But it was actually predominantly white. But unfortunately, the, um, the uh, tournament referee, uh, Captain Gibson, who had been called to the court you know when i showed up and looked and said well you know i'm gonna i'm gonna request that you go back to the you know ladies changing room and you come up with a different outfit because i'm not gonna allow that and so because of that little outfit and you know they didn't even have virginia slims they didn't sell the product and that was i think 1972 and because of that now you know, you were required if you had a an outfit that was kind of questionable that you had to go to the referee's, de- you know, um, office and, and have it cleared, If you, especially if you're playing on center court. Wow. So, so that's what happened to that outfit, and that outfit's sitting at the International Hall of Fame in Newport. That's <laughs> so cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the battle that you guys began to wage when women teamed up and said there needs to be more parity in terms of pay uh, because you're you know you're playing the same sport in front of the same audience yeah worked just as hard you know and we felt we were entertaining and just as much as the fellows if not more and uh, so in 1968 is when open tennis came into the picture so that means there was professionals playing. You can say you were professional. And we were contracted prior to that in 67, 68 to a group called the National Tennis League. So we were actually pros before they opened that up and we could not play any of the Grand Slam, which labor belonged to Roseville, Pancho Gonzalez, all those players. So when they opened it up, it was like an exciting moment. And that we felt, oh, great. You know, that means we can earn a living and make money. So as it progressed and the men got more than the women all the time because the men were running the tournaments, um, they had to say, you know, the USTA that governed, uh, you know, tennis in the United States, 
um, they didn't really care about women. They, 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 they were still in that era where women didn't play sports. Right. And if they played tennis, they played a nice little game, you know, in the club. In, it, it wasn't but a don't competitive sweat too thing. Much. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't <laughs> to earn a living. Right. right. We wanted to earn a living. The women that had dedicated themselves to play tennis and, as I said, went out and practiced and worked just as hard as the guy. So in the, in the you know, 69, 70s, all of a sudden, you know, we're playing these grand slams and labor wins, you know, 10,000, Billie Jean gets 1,000, um, you know. Uh, Nastasi wins 25, Billie Jean gets 10, you know, at, at the U.S. Open. And we knew that unless we gathered together, we were not going to make an impact or an influence in any way. And the women finally started getting together. And in 1970, when we got to the U.S. Open, um, you know, everybody was in that little locker room saying, hey, listen, we got a boycott because we, we, if we don't make a statement and, and we got to do it together, um, they're going to keep doing this. I mean, they're going to give the guys more money. They're going to give them better times. They're going to give them more exposure. And we're getting very little. And so that's when the whole move started to boycott um, Jack Kramer's tournament in L.A. and to establish our tournament in Houston and Virginia Slims was our sponsor, and Gladys Helbin, who was the publisher of World Tennis and very influential in the tennis industry, um, went to Joe Coleman, who was the uh, CEO at Philip Morris, and said, we need your help, we need to have money, we want a tour, and uh, they were just launching the Virginia Slims cigarette. Right. Now imagine that. Um, but in the 70s, uh, it was acceptable. And Philip Morris did a lot for the arts and did a lot for sports. I mean, they had all the formula, you know, uh, ones. And Marlboro was a major sponsor. So, Well, you people know. forget because, you know, yeah. the battle against smoking was, you know, oh, was yeah. won a long time now. ago. Yeah. But, you know, back in those days in the 60s, everybody smoked. Yeah. Yeah, in the 50s. It was I mean, healthy back then. It, it, That's it right. Was, it was fashionable. It That's was fashionable. Right. When you think about, you know, Johnny Carson or Jack Parshall, I mean, they'd come in and they'd light up. Oh, and Tom they Snyder. Smoke right there. Tom and, Snyder sitting on the yeah. set of, uh, you know, the, the yeah. Late Late Show, just with that, that cigarette yeah, That's going. right. It, uh, it, it so, was acceptable. Yeah, and so it was not, I mean... It, Certainly, that was not the only sporting endeavor that, that a cigarette company endorsed and, and sponsored. So it no, wasn't unusual. But but, but uh, it was important for you guys to get those kinds of big dollars. Because it started Absolutely. your tour. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if it wasn't for Virginia Slims, certainly women's tennis wouldn't be where it is today. I mean, they knew how to market. They knew how to promote. And they showed us how to talk to the media. They showed wow. how to promote. They would come in with their... Uh, you know, team. Uh, they had PR. They had marketing. I mean, and everything was first class. I mean, they really knew how to do it. And they put women's tennis on the map. I mean, when we started, we thought, I don't know, you know, because from that came the original nine, and those original nine players were the courageous and brave ones that said, look, we want equal prize money. We're going to fight 
we're going to boycott, we're going to do all the stuff that we need to do um, to get what we want. And, uh, you know, we were suspended, yes, and we were, you know, wondering what are we going to do now? We have to play our own events, but as time went by, uh, you know, we were accepted more and more. The women said, gee, how much money are you guys making? Uh, Billie Jean made $100,000 in that first year. In, in 1971 was our first year, and she made 100000 Mind you, she had, we had to play everything. I mean, it was the kind of thing that you had to play singles and doubles. You couldn't just choose and play, you know, and you had to pretty much play all year. In addition to the Grand Slam tournaments, you had to play your tour, and, and it was uh, pretty tough because not only were you playing, uh, you know, we, we, we were going out and doing our PR. We, we were playing pro-ams. We were giving clinics because it would start on a Wednesday, so whoever finished on a Sunday or prior to the Sunday would go ahead and do their promos Monday, Tuesday, and the ones that were in the finals obviously would come later. But there was a lot to do and a lot of educating to the media, to the public. But um, Were you able to get individual sponsorship or was it just for the tour? The, the, the individual, what do you mean? Well, I there mean, would be so you could sign endorsement. That, that, that would be yeah, a, an sorry. endorsement. Yeah. Of course, yeah. I mean, if you were a top player in the top five, six or ten, yeah, you would, but, but nothing compared to what you hear now. I mean, Nike was just coming into right. the picture. Right. And uh, so they were trying to solicit players that, you know, um, were winning tournaments and in the top, you know, three, four, five. Wow. What is this, a grasshopper? What is this? Uh, uh, we're looking at a drink that just got given to our producer, wow. which we refer to as the big conversation. Uh. I, I think like they call it a color. blueberry martini, but uh, yeah, whatever. I'm going to have to have one of those. <laughs> anyway, so so yes, the, there were endorsements, um, you know, for rackets, for shoes, for clothing, and um, you know, some of uh, the top players would get that. But basically, your money was coming from what you earned in prize money, and uh, you know, we we would win our doubles in, in on the Virginia Slims, and maybe you would split a thousand dollars for winning, and in the Maybe you were split ten thousand. Uh, oh, you would win like seventy five hundred for the singles. So it was considerably more, and all of that was starting to evolve. And uh, second year, it was more like you know uh, five hundred thousand, and uh, in in total prize money. We started so you got traction with, pretty quickly. I mean, just it did. in, in it the did. second we, year, this thing starts to snowball. Yes, yes. We did. We, you have all the top women. Well, in the beginning, we did not. In the beginning, well, Margaret Court, who was uh, the top uh, player at the time, played with us, and then came Chris Everett and Yvonne Gulagong, mm. and Virginia played a couple of turners on the Virginia Slim, but decided it was just too difficult to play week after week after week. Yeah. And the USTA, who was the governing body of, of tennis in the U.S., was so unhappy with the women playing Virginia Slims because we were dictating policy and how we were going to get paid, where we were going to play, and we didn't care about you that. You took the power back. And, and exactly. So they got really annoyed and started a women's circuit. 
<laughs> competing with us. Men started a women's circuit to compete yeah, against yeah, you. Yeah, the USTA, which was governed by men, because we were always fighting with them, and Gladys was uh, asking for this and telling them, this is our sketches, this is how we're going to do it, uh, and they didn't like it. And so they started their own tour for the women. And we were in competition, and it was crazy. You know, we kept on saying, why are we doing it? Why aren't we? Finally, in 1973, I believe, they combined. So that was only a couple of years after you guys just sort of broke off and said, we're going to do It was almost a year after that they decided, uh, you know, we we played a whole year, 71. And 72, they came along and said, no, uh, we're going to start a tour to rival you. And, you know, because they wanted to influence the women and they wanted to dictate and stuff. And so they did, and they had, you know, Yvonne Goulion was too young to really feel as if she could, you know, uh, say, no, I want to be with the Virginia Slims. The same thing with Chris Everett, because, you know, her dad was very much of a USDA person. So um, the younger generation went with the USDA, and Virginia Wade, the slightly older generation as well. So it was a little competitive and divisive, and, uh, you know, we had a little bit of a, a competitive thing going. When so when when you guys finally came together, yeah, when we finally came together, well, you know, we sort of looked at them down down our, <laughs> you know, like we we could have had this if you would have joined us ahead of time. Right. We could have been ahead of the game a little bit more, and you could have had more prize money, and we wouldn't have had to work so hard because we did. We worked hard, as I said, not only in playing. Uh, we played late, you know, the doubles would come along at 10 o'clock at night, and uh, and there was only one court most of the times, because we played in the winter, there's only one court, so, you know, it was uh, tough scheduling, but we had smaller draws, so, um, yeah, I, I think if they would have been part of a group to begin with, um, I think we would have gotten there a little bit sooner, but nonetheless, maybe we wouldn't have hit, you know, during that time, were there any of the male players that were showing public support for you guys? Very few. Hmm. Very few. Most of them thought we were nuts, you know, asking for what we were asking, having our own tour, especially the American men. So I was very surprised, you know, that they didn't support us. But, hey, they, were, they came of the generation that women did not play sports, you know. Women stayed home or got married, had kids, and took care of the kids, and if they traveled or if they played, it'd be once in a while, but not for uh, to earn a living. And, and so, where are we on the pay equality thing now with tennis? Well, we're, we're still a bit of ways. I mean, we are equal in all the Grand Slams. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just happened pretty recently, right? Well, we were celebrating 50 years this year, 50 years of equal prize money at the, at the, the U.S. Open. Hmm. And... Um, they did a whole beautiful campaign around Billie Jean, uh, and um, you know because in 1972, um, we said to them, if if you do not give us equal prize money, we are going to boycott the U.S. Open. So um, Billy Talbert, who was a player, uh, a very good player, and also the tournament director, said, look, if you bring in the money, we'll do it. And we brought in, and Billie Jean brought in uh, 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 Bristol Myers, Claro, Van Deodorant. That was our sponsor. And that was the equal prize money. And they were the first one to say, okay, 
okay? And believe me, Billy, Billy Talbert was not, was not a popular guy. <laughs> but we, we, we definitely thanked them for having made that commitment to us because it, it really made a difference. Now, did it influence the other ones? The other ones finally came in in the 80s. Um, I think uh, Australia was, was the second one to come in sometime in the... Uh, late 70s, I think, uh, early 80s, and uh, Wimbledon finally, and then the last one was the French Open to finally. So right now we are equal. Where we're not equal is in many of the tournaments um, and th that are yeah, ATP and WTA because, first of all, they have a slightly a bigger draw, and second of all, the media rights are a little bit different than ours, where they get more money for their product than we do so they're able to pay and we're not able to pay as much therefore it. Um, it but but I've been told that we're like eight years from getting there and I think that's too long <laughs> it is too long, <laughs> I mean, too long. you've been doing at this for that this formula that, yeah. that, that has been developed in, in WTA um, I'm only sorry that we're not young enough and there where we can say, wait, wait a minute. It, it doesn't have to take it years. And, and, and at least that's how I feel. I don't know all the circumstances because I know it's all about money and, and, and how, the, uh, how our sport is sold. And yes, the men still make more money in different ways of, you know, endorsements, endorsements. And, 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 and especially media rights and but that is all changing. That is all changing and, and will change. But I'm hopeful that it, it's going to take less than, than the eight to ten years that, that they've said it's going to take. Yeah, Let, let's, let's go back to something kind of fun. And this is I'm going to bring my mom back in here. So okay. about the most depressed I've ever seen my mom was when Bobby beat Margaret. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> about the happiest I've ever seen my mom was after Billie Jean beat Bobby. She r rallied around that whole thing, and, and that's when she, you became a, a, a hero of hers because you were the announcer. We just celebrated the 50th anniversary of that, so, didn't we? So right. talk about that. Talk about the build-up to that. Uh, well, okay. So Bobby decides that, you know, he wants some of the money that the women are making and he's, you know he, he's very clever he's legitimately a very he was legitimately a very good player i mean he, he was triple crown uh crown winner uh at wimbledon and number one uh and he turned pro and he was number one in the pros as well so you know at being uh, age age uh uh 53 um you know he's mine because he, he's a gambler you know he, he's he's somebody who's just always trying to find a way to get get that money out of your pocket so he <laughs> starts looking at this and realizing that the women are making good money and all and hey you know he, he, how can he threaten anybody he's an older guy but and he and he and and it's during the you know women's lib and you know all of that happening in the 70s and he starts talking about uh, you know women belong in the kitchen the mouth the roar uh, uh, yeah yeah, I mean, yeah. He, he was a loud mouth uh, being a, uh, talking like a chauvinist and and of course I called him a chauvinist pig <laughs> and um, you know and and it starts calling everybody he, he, he calls Billie Jean first and says I, I'm gonna challenge you I want to challenge you uh, 
twenty twenty five thousand to the winner. She said, absolutely not. And then it goes to Chris. I, I want to challenge you, and Chris turns it down. That you know, it's not for me. And he goes to Margaret, and Margaret figures, well, hey, twenty five thousand dollars, you know, guaranteed, and another twenty five if you win. So she accepts the challenge, and you know, it's called the Mother Days Massacre. <laughs> and we, Billy Jean and I are coming back from Japan. We gone to play doubles there and singles and what have you and we stop in Hawaii in Honolulu at the airport and you know those little TVs for you know that you put your 25 yeah. cents in well desk, we, yeah. we run because we know that they're playing it and, and we run and you know get the quarters out and start putting it looking at it and oh my god and then we, we see the last couple games and and she's like you know Toast. He's running her all over the court. I mean, she goes, I can't even say what she said, but, um, (laughs) you know, I'm going to have to play him. I'm going to have to play him. And so um, she, they contacted her, obviously, and she says, yes, I'll play you. I mean, I would have said, I don't know about that, because, you know, it it wasn't a regular, normal match. I mean, this is, and and that's what happened to Margaret. Margaret thought, uh, you know, uh, she was number one at the time. She's playing great tennis. Uh, There's no way she's going to lose to some 53-year-old, you know, guy. And, and, you know, she just never really prepared. Did she get overwhelmed by the whole? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And first of all, they play in the middle of, nowhere they haven't built the place yet they they, they you know uh, roll out the cement and build her, build a tennis court you know and so uh, she's thinking well yeah this is going to be okay but the cameras are out there the media's out there and the fans are out there and boy all of a sudden you know she doesn't know what hit her i mean her she eyes was got so this big. nervous yeah. And uh, she just couldn't settle down. I mean, ordinarily, she would have beaten him one and one. But he got a lot of balls back, got in her head, and he did. He got totally... And, and, and he's used to these things. He would yeah. play with the umbrella with galoshes. Yeah, he was yeah. a gimmick guy. Oh, yeah. He, he tried to find, what, what can I challenge? What can I play? I'll play with, with, with a frying pan. I'll play it. <laughs> so... Yeah, uh, she was not prepared. So, uh, so Billie Jean obviously approached it very differently. Oh, God, are you kidding? I mean, she knew. And she watched the match. She watched the match. She watched him. Uh, she watched all the old one of him. She trained. Jim got a coach. I mean, she went through all of it. And, and you know, she paced herself. There was a lot of media. Uh, yeah. A lot of interviews, as you could, you know, you'll see that she did a lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, interviews and stuff. How did you get recruited to be the uh, the announcer? Well, because I, I I was the one that was, you know, calling him a show in his pig. You're hired. You know, he he he, he, he you know he's 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 an old fart, and, and you know he doesn't deserve to. To even be on the tennis. So, I mean, I'm just going off on You're him. giving him the business. And, and I, so. I gave him the business, really. I gave him the business. And then he felt, well, you know, we have a battle of the sexes on the court and one, you know. In, with, in the booth. With, 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 yeah, Howard Cosell. And originally, Jack Kramer was the one that was supposed to be the other color commentator. But because of the fact, she said, look, if he's 
going to be the color com I will not play because I am not going to give him a platform in which to uh, he's going to you know uh, go against women's tennis and say all these bad things about women's tennis so I'm not going to give him that platform and so he told Rune Arlich who was the producer ABC wide yeah. world of sports yeah, um, hey so up until the almost the night before I mean he wasn't going to change it and finally, they flew in Jean Scott because she said, "You do that," and and it was within her contract that she had to, that she could approve. So within her contract, and so they just didn't think she would do it. And she said, "I will do it." And so fortunately, they brought in Jean Scott, and so that was my competition, which wasn't much. <laughs> well, you told me that actually you just got to see the whole thing. Well, I did get to see the, uh, the whole thing finally because, as I said, seeing it from way up in the booth where we were, the little tiny uh, court looked like a little stamp, and you didn't really get that feeling. I mean, sure, I'm watching it on TV, so it's different, but um, they aired it on September 20th. It's the 21st. I can't remember one of the days. Um, you know, ESPN put it on, and it was so funny to sit there and watch it and listen to me, you know, and what Howard said, and, you know, everybody talks about how he put his arm around. God, that, I mean, that would never happen now, right? right. Everything's so different. Right. So different, and, yes. Um, but um, it looked like we were in slow motion. You know, the match was in slow motion. I just got finished coming back from the U.S. Open, and everything was like, wow, 100 miles an hour, the clocking poor hands and, you know, ground strokes and everything, and this looked like lollipop. <laughs> he was all slice and spin. Uh, 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 yeah. yeah, so so it, it was so different, but it was so much fun watching and seeing the stars, the movies, Hollywood was out there to listen to myself and and really get a different perspective on the match because it was you know so different being up there and commentating and listen to Howard and having to correct him when he said these things that really didn't you know and he'd look at me like <laughs> I'm Howard you know who I am? <laughs> did so. you have a sense at that time for what it meant in this country it was a big oh, yeah. deal. No, I, I, I think we all had a, a good sense, uh, especially when you entered that arena. And, you you know, we were so much a part of the media and listening to the media. And, and it wasn't just, uh, you know, U.S. media. It was international media that, uh, you know, uh, she could have had an interview every every single day if, oh, she, yeah. if, if, if she wanted to. So in... In May is when she committed to it. You know, when we just got back, she committed to it. But we, uh, she wasn't going to announce till after Wimbledon. She didn't want any excess media. So after she won Wimbledon, then you know they announced that it would take place September. So um, you know, there, from that point on, you know, it, everybody knew that it was going to happen, and there was such a you know, excitement and, and you know, though everybody, yeah, betting, whether you knew tennis or not, didn't matter. You know, people were taking sides, you know. And if I win, you got to do this. My, the wife would say to the husband, then you got to do London, you got to take care of the kids, you know. So, yeah, I, I, I did feel it was going to be a, a, a very impactful, um, you know, especially to what 
what we were trying to do, and that's to get equal prize money and to be recognized and to get the exposure and given the opportunity to earn a living. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 it was going to be meaningful because uh, um, the uh, other scenario we didn't even want to think about. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> didn't even want to think about because it would have put women's tennis back. When that was a lot of pressure on Billy. Oh Jean. my oh, yeah. God! Yeah. You know she she says in her book, and one of her books is named "Pressure is a Privilege." I always say to her, "Bullshit." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I I, love I don't that. I I don't look at it as such. Um, I look at it as a necessity and something you have to deal with if if you're competing, you know, and you deal with it as best as you can. But she says she embraced it. Wow. And and some people do. You know, some people, that is when they perform the best. Right. She oh, was yeah. the right person yeah. at the right time. Absolutely. Yeah. Everything was at the right time. Because I don't think this match would mean anything today. Because it couldn't be the same. It could never be the same with all the things that were happening with women's live. And That's a really good. The world is world not in the changed. Me Too well, world. Yes. Uh, yeah. The, the whole the whole situation has changed. And so I what have you got you, coming up? As a matter of fact, I'm heading south to Cancun for the WTA Championships. So that that will be exciting. Um, you know, originally we thought it was going to be in Saudi Arabia, but I think they got so much uh, negative uh, feedback. Like, why are you going there? Because, as you know, the Saudi Arabia is taking over. They already took over golf, so you know, it's <laughs> yeah. working on the tennis. <laughs> yep. And you know, all I have to say is, we can take their money, but don't give up the control. Because I think that, that, unfortunately, I think that's what happened to the. PGA, they they didn't take them seriously, but we're taking them very seriously. Good, good. I wanted you just to reminisce for a minute or two because I mean, you're a kid, you're growing up, as you said, on the wrong side of the tracks in San Francisco, playing at Golden Gate Park. Talk about the first time you stepped onto the court at Wimbledon. <laughs> well, getting there and going with Billie Jean, she said, "Look, I want you to come with me on a Sunday. We start on Monday." She says, "I always do this every time before." I start Wimbledon I, I go early of course they wouldn't have let me through the gates through the pearly gates so with her we got a chance to go into the center court which is just you know the atmosphere is incredible and there were no people in there but with the people it's even more so but it was like a cathedral I mean you know she sat there and we looked at the beautiful green grass where you know not one blemish is is there and, and she says I, I come here and I meditate before the tournament I envision myself and all that and it it, it was the prettiest sight I've ever seen I mean it, I, I think it's everything that I dreamt about feeling you know the the, the, the emotion the attachment to um, feeling very comfortable uh, in that atmosphere now mind you I, I didn't know what it would feel like uh, when it was full and and with about 13,000 people. And, uh, you know, the Brits are very polite and, and, and they clap for things. Things are different now, but then, you know, you clap for the good shots. You didn't clap for any double faults. And, you know, uh, they knew their tennis. They knew their players. And, you know, it, it was just a real moment that, uh, you know, it's hard to explain having, you know, 
thought about it and 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 you know come from play, a place where you would never I don't think I would have dreamt about you know being a tennis player when when I was a little kid I mean you know what's that and what and 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 to have the opportunity to go to London and you hear about London bridges falling down and <laughs> the Tower of London Buckingham Palace and I'm here and and I'm here at Wimbledon looking at this beautiful court that you know tomorrow uh, the players are going to be in all white coming onto the court and all the spectators, all the tennis fans are going to be there and the first time that I went on center court to play with the people there, it was like awesome. I mean, I, I can't explain, you know, I didn't feel nervous or anything. I, I really didn't. I felt very comfortable and some players don't like Wimbledon. They just, you know, whatever, they don't like the feel. Everybody's a little bit different as to what they like because most of them play in these huge arenas now. And right. even though we played in Madison Square Garden and the Forum and sports arena and big places that have, you know, 15,000, um, there's, you know, now every arena is, is big. And if you're watching TV, they're all huge stadiums of yeah. 15,000 plus. Oh, look yeah. at ours here. It's an amazing. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so it was such a difference. I mean, being the first time I, I you know, I did play it at, 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 uh, at uh, the U.S. Open at Forest Hills, but, but it, it just was a different feeling, a different feeling to be, um, you know, with a polite crowd who is very knowledgeable. Royalty sitting in the front yeah, yeah, box. Yeah, the best yeah. part about it was that when you were told there was royalty, then you knew that you would come with your opponent to the service line and you would turn around and curtsy. Curtsy, yeah. And I'm sorry they took that away because I thought it was that tradition is what makes yeah. it special. It's yeah. all about tradition when it comes to women. Well, there's a mystique there that <laughs> yeah. uh, I think uh, like no other place no. in tennis. Like yeah. no other. <laughs> what a, what How a was fantastic. that? Huh? How was that? Rosie Casals. <laughs> Pretty damn good is what I think it is. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I've been very privileged to spend time with Rosie, and, and, but it's really fun to kind of delve down into these, uh, these stories. Uh, and what an incredible career. Inducted into the Tennis Hall of Fame twice. Yeah, and, well, that was um, very... Special, I think, because it was with the original nine. And again, we had to do battle because they did not do groups and they only um, inducted individuals. And we said, well, why can't we come under a different category? Well, you can come under that category, but it's every four years, but you still don't qualify. We've never done a group. So... We fought him. Well, how can you not do this? How can you, we, we are part of history? We 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 changed women's tennis. We created the women's pro tour. We created the, everything that women's tennis is. How can you not say this is not part of history? So we went on a little campaign with the media, and you know, finally they started writing about it and all that. And you know, we were just keep kept on bugging and bugging you know because COVID came along and so we, we, we would have been we wanted 2020 but we came on 2021 and but finally you know they 
said, okay, we, we, we're going to induct the original nine. So nice. uh, that was, you know, very exciting. And like I keep saying, I've been inducted twice. Now I'm looking to see how I can get inducted one, third one time. more time. You have to work <laughs> on that. One more time. <laughs> well, you're, you're your right hand guy over here, Leighton. He's pretty good at, at, at uh, yeah, no, ginning no. up press. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Ginning up, up press. You heard that, right? Yeah. <laughs> we got to come up with something. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is a chance for me again to say thanks from my mom to you. Well, you, you and where, that whole wherever situation. Wherever she is, tell her thank you for being a fan and believing in us and, you know, supporting what what the women did and she uh, smoked virginia slims hey, so. okay that's even, that's even better but i must say they were very good at not pushing uh, us to smoke or in any way to you know bring out a cigarette uh, during the uh, interview after the yeah so yeah <laughs> but but funny enough uh, we did smoke some uh, you know during that time i i i smoked a little bit i mean i'd go in the locker room and have a couple cigarettes they were not Virginia Slims, so that really, that really annoyed them. But nonetheless, I'll bet um, it did. I, I, we couldn't have done without them. And, you know, tennis, women's tennis is looking really good now. Well, you know, rarely do we get a chance to really sit down with somebody who changed the face of history. And you did. Uh, you changed the entire face of, of women's tennis. And that has a ripple effect on all women's sports. Uh, yes. I think tennis is far ahead of the game. Uh, in comparison to other sports and, and what a trailblazer so thank you very much for spending this last uh, 45 to an hour here with us well, telling these stories well, we so appreciate you, Patrick, it Patrick for having me Randy it's always a pleasure it meant a lot to have you here. here and now I know where the little bar is <laughs> how about that we're on a, a singular mission to tell everybody where little bar is if, yeah. if there's no other goal to this podcast that's it we're yeah. trying to improve Skip Page's bottom line. <laughs> and they got, I'm sure great, he needs they got great drinks. <laughs> they do have great drinks. Ladies and gentlemen, what a fantastic opportunity to sit down with Rosie Casals and talk tennis. Thank you so much. And we'll be back with another episode of Big Conversations, a little more on behalf of John McMullen, my co-host Randy Florence. I'm Patrick Evans. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining us for Big Conversations, Little Bar, with Patrick Evans and Randy Florence. Hear our entire library of episodes from Big Conversations, LittleBar.com or most major podcast portals. This podcast is a production of the Mutual Broadcasting System.